0: Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Uh, It is Monday. It's October. August the nineteenth, August the not August the eighteenth. That was yesterday. And it's a special Monday edition of Drive Through HR. We didn't have a show last week, but I had a guest I wanted to been wanting to get on for a while, and he was able to connect this morning. So, this is Michael. Uh, we're going to talk one on one with Jerry Fernandez. Jerry, welcome to Drive Through HR. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing just great, uh, and I'm happy to be with you this morning. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. You're, you're
0: absolutely uh, glad to have you. Glad to have a chance to catch up. Um, I'll ask you to introduce yourself in just one second, Jerry. But before before we do that, I, I just need to do two things. So one is Jerry is the president and founder of an organization called the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance, um, and he's been doing that for a while. We'll find out how long in just a second. I've known Jerry for several years. He's been a speaker at a couple of Q conferences in the past, and I just want to make a mention of Q, which is the sponsor of the of Drive Through HR. We have a conference coming up in Las Vegas in October uh, and expect a great turnout, have a great schedule. If you're interested in uh, learning more about how to build positive employee relations in the workplace, go check out our website at CUEINC.com. There's also a link there to the conference registration landing page just click on events and you'll you'll see the uh you'll see the tab that will take you to that page. So thanks to Q for being our sponsor. Jerry uh for those folks who unlike me don't know you a little bit, can you can you tell our listeners uh who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Um well I'm a restaurant uh operator by training. I I I went to culinary school and got a management degree and and ran restaurants and worked in hotels uh for quite some time before going to General Mills in Minneapolis in, um, in the early 90s. And it was while I was at, at General Mills that the, uh, the idea of creating an organization that would promote opportunities for underrepresented groups, people of color, minorities, whichever term uh, it makes you most comfortable, is what we were all about. So MFHA, as we go by, the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance, is an educational advocacy organization that promotes the business benefits of diversity and inclusion, so why does it um, does it make sense? why is it good for business to have an inclusive environment where people regardless of what their ethnic racial cultural identity background is um, uh, how so all those people can contribute to the organization, help it be more effective uh, uh, and basically deliver better bottom line results so so that's what we've been focused on for for 24 years I've uh, been in the restaurant business 45 years So I think wow. the combination of my Operational experience and expertise And I opened the very first Capital Grill Steakhouse which is pretty well known um, That coupled with All the knowledge I've developed And built up over the years uh, In the area of, of culture And inclusion has, has made our Organization um, relevant And uh, effective
0: Um Thanks. Um, you guys, um, 20, 24 years. I, I didn't realize you'd been doing it. I, I didn't realize you'd been doing it for that long. Um, yeah, the, yeah. It, it, amazing. Um, you guys had a, um, this is a little off, this is a little bit off the uh, agenda we discussed, but, it, it, um, a couple of years ago you guys, uh, engaged as an association or an alliance you guys developed a partnership, I think, with the university. Can you, can you talk about that for just a second and how that's changed things sure. for you?
1: So sure. We, we uh, partnered with my alma mater, Johnson & Wales, for, for about three years, and they kind of helped us launch our cultural intelligence platform. Uh, more recently, we've partnered uh, close, closely with the National Restaurant Association to be able to take advantage of their uh, size and, and um, range of reach uh, because as a small educational nonprofit, being partnered with with the behemoth of the National Restaurant Association it allows you to get to many many um many places and so that's been a really helpful partnership
0: great um Jerry i, I was just i was just sitting here thinking about this and and you know you mentioned 45 years in 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 the in the industry and i've been 30 plus in hr um and it, you know, the terminologies that, you know, we're talking about here, inclusion, cultural intelligence, the terminologies have changed over the years. At one time, I think it was, you know, get get your EEOC numbers right. And then it would, you know, then we started talking about affirmative action, or maybe it was, you know, the other way around. And then it seemed seems as if it morphed into a discussion about diversity. And I think now, at least in my, my mind, it seems like inclusion is the, is the, um, main word we're using. Can you talk about that flow for a minute and kind of talk about the state of where we're at when it comes to inclusion, I guess, is really the high-level question?
1: Sure. Um, That's a perfect segue because I just uh, conducted our first of a series of state of the industry when it comes to culture and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. As you aptly stated, uh, we have seen an evolution over the last 25 to 35 years of what used to be EEO and affirmative action became diversity, then diversity and inclusion, then inclusion and diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so there are any number of, of uh, labels people put on what you uh, uh, framed as inclusive cultures. And with the development of, of uh, the workforce in the way that it, it, it's it's um, played out, where we have five generations in the workforce, in the workforce, and millennials and Gen Z see the world of work very differently. If they, if if companies aren't inclusive, if young people can't see their gay friends and their black friends and their biracial friends and their Muslim friends um, being welcomed into the company, um, they won't work for you. So this whole attitude of building inclusive cultures uh, is healthy. Because what it does is it focuses on creating opportunities so that everyone in the organization, regardless of their role uh, or how they self-identify, has the ability to contribute at the highest level of their capabilities and their ambition. So if you have skills and you have ambition that can take you to the top, you ought to be able to have that that, uh, opportunity. Um, but, again, it's relevant to the, the individual's ability uh, and their willingness to do the work. So inclusion, inclusive cultures, inclusion and diversity seems to be the area where this, this has found its broadest base of support um, as a business issue. And it, it's less into black and white and um, us against them. Uh, it's more inclusive, which means everybody has an opportunity to contribute. Everybody gets a piece of pizza. Everybody um, plays a role in the success of the company. And
0: <clears throat> excuse me, Monday morning, I guess. Um, you mentioned cultural intelligence, Jerry, and I know that's something that you've you you, you did a workshop on it for Q and, and some other things. But um, tell first, define what cultural intelligence is, and then kind of talk about your work, if you would.
1: Sure. We built, uh, we moved and went into the direction of of cultural intelligence about seven or eight years ago. Uh, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review about cultural intelligence being a new skill of business. And basically, what it is, is understanding how to manage and interact effectively across different cultures. And so, we define it as having the knowledge, skills, and ability to effectively and appropriately engage people from different cultural groups to deliver better business results. So everything that we do, will come back to how do we improve the business metrics, raise the top line, improve the bottom line, add value to the brand. And so building your IQ is one thing, building your EQ, which is emotional quotient is another building, your cultural quotient or CQ um, is the third dimension. Because once you understand that there are different cultural groups in your organization, in your customer profile, in the communities in which you operate, you recognize that, that you need to engage them differently and, and, and frequently um, in, uh, in ways that are, are not, not like what we've done in the past. So what has worked historically uh, with this group or that group won't necessarily be um, successful for you know, these young folks coming in, immigrants, uh, people who have uh, underexposure to certain markets. So, so again, I understand the different cultures that you have in your organization and how to effectively engage them. Because, you know, the Gallup data says if you engage people, they produce at a much higher level. You know, they, their, their absenteeism goes down, their productivity goes up, theft goes down, injuries go down. So when you understand how to engage somebody who's a Spanish speaker uh, but from Mexico is not necessarily the same personality or profile as somebody who's who's a Spanish speaker from the Dominican Republic. So understanding the differences of different cultures and groups and how to be effective with them is is what having cultural intelligence is all about.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny um, story. I, I think I've told it on Drive Through before, but I was I was probably twenty years into my career. I'm talking sometime back in like the late nineties. So at least 10 years ago, um, we had three divisions combined into one, and we created a new, you know, basically a new culture, three different companies. And one of the things that we needed to put together was a new employee handbook. And so we, we, we did a lot of work to do that, you know, collaboratively with different people from different parts of the group and different levels of the organization and all that. So we had a pretty nice handbook, and we had a large uh, Hispanic contingent across the U.S. in our manufacturing areas. And so we needed to have that book translated into Spanish. So I, and I'd never done that before. I'd never actually had it had to seek out a vendor to do translation. So I called somebody and got a mm-hmm. couple names, reached out to a guy and asked him, Hey, can you translate this book? And he said, Well, send it to me and I'll take a look at it. And then he then he writes. He said, I have a few questions. And he sends me an email. And one of the questions is, What what form of Spanish do you want us to use? And <laughs> and I was like, Spanish, Spanish you know, and, 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 and I didn't know what he was getting at. And it was the point of what you just mentioned is that there are just like in the U S with our Southern dialects or a Boston accent or a New York, you know, Brooklyn accent, there are, there are nuances to language, you know, from based on what company you're from, whether it's, you know, whether you're from Spain or, or South or Central America or Puerto Rico. And I felt like such a, Dumbass when it when it because you know, it seemed so obvious once you explained it, but never never occurred to me because I'd never dealt with it before and never really even had to had to think about it, you know? And really, really made us that little lesson made a strong impression on me about how how you have to really look under the hood to think about these things. It was kind of a cultural oh, yeah, intelligence awakening for me, I think.
1: <laughs> now that's a so that's a very good example that different dialects of Spanish, different words mean different things. You know, everybody who's black is not African-American, you know, black from the Caribbean uh, find that offensive to be called African-American because they don't identify that way. And I, I use a, an analogy to sports. If you're a Red Sox fan and somebody calls you a Yankee fan just because you're from the East, you know, that's, mm. that's a big stretch, okay? So I'm a Red Sox fan, and and although the Red Sox and the Yankees both play baseball and they're both in the Northeast, those two – uh, teams in those two cities couldn't be further from each other. Very different in the way they identify, very different um, in their fan base, so to speak. So uh, getting smart about the, the different cultures is part of, of the whole process. But the first thing that people that we recommend this is a four, four-pronged four approach to how we think you build an inco- inclusive culture. First, you start with unconscious bias. That's, that's uh, Everybody has bias. If you have a brain, you have bias. If you have a brain, you have unconscious bias. And so when everyone gets in touch with the fact that we all have a brain that takes shortcuts and we make assumptions about different people and different groups and different experiences based upon our limited background and our, what we've experienced. And so so if I've never lived or grew up around Hispanics, I probably have unbalanced views about them. So get in touch with your own biases, number one. Once you've got that, now you start to build your cultural intelligence because you recognize – wow, we have all sorts of different people in the organization. If I want to coach, teach, train, and develop them to produce at higher levels, I've got to understand the uniqueness that each of them bring to the to the table. Third, then you start focusing on leadership development. And leadership development uh, skills are, are brought to the table slightly different depending upon each, each group. So what works for uh, – Uh, women is not always the same thing that works for men. What works for white men uh, may may have to be different than for, for it to work with black or Latinos or immigrants, again, all based upon what we bring to the table. Once you get that, now you can go into the community and you can do community engagement effectively, which will drive customers to your business and employees to your business because you now go into those communities understanding your own bias, your own blind spots, you understand when you're in a Dominican community versus the Mexican community versus the Guatemalan community. they understand what leadership looks like and how you develop it differently in, in in each community and then you're effective people feel like hey that company that individual that brand understands me and and uh, I, I want to be involved with them I want to work with them i want to I want to um, uh, you know, partner with them in some way, shape, or form, because they understand me and my community. That is the key to being successful in this multicultural millennium that we find ourselves in.
0: How how does a man, like, so like I'm picturing, like, say, a McDonald's, like a shift manager, right? You know, you, somebody that's in there working with the hourly folks. How does, how does, how do they deal with that? I mean, that, that's kind of, I mean, cause they got, they probably have two or three different cultures or, or, Um, Backgrounds on any shift in in a normal urban McDonald's, I would say, you know, your average restaurant probably is pretty mixed. So how do you deal with that, that close to the floor?
1: Well, first of all, keep in mind, regardless of our difference, we're all the same. We're all people. We all bleed red. You know, we all want our families to be successful. We all care about uh, family and friends. We all want to do a good job. We all want to be recognized for doing a good job. So, there's more that brings us together than, than, than brings us, that separates us, and we have to keep that in mind, especially in this mm-hmm. crisis times we find ourselves. But companies like um, McDonald's, Cisco, and Starbucks, those are three companies that are actually doing unconscious bias training for hourly employees. They are out there bringing this educational content to their hourly employees because they recognize what what it will mean for their hourly employees development and what it will mean for guests in in the restaurant or or the facility, the cafe or what have you. See mm-hmm. corporate corporate generates no revenue. All the revenue is done out there in the field, in the restaurants, in the hotels, where customers and employees, you know, meet the road. And so when young people that are, are on the front lines um get educated to how different cultures see the world. Um, and how better to engage them, they produce better results. When you begin to understand you have blind spots about different groups, you catch yourself and say, oh, wow, maybe I'm making an assumption that's not accurate. And, and, and I've seen it from talking to hourly employees how, how they have,
0: they've been, been able to
1: catch themselves, you know, in a biased moment. Oh, wow, that's a bias of mine that's, that's popping up. And it benefits the customer. Uh, with, with Starbucks, who just presented at one of our sessions uh, recently in California, they talked a lot about, uh, and this is true, I think, for lots of companies. Uh, frontline uh, employees want to to know want to engage. They they want to talk about you know the things that make us different, these these challenges that we find, you know, with one person on the left side and one person on the right side about immigration. But they don't know how. So companies, when you give them tools on how to have a healthy conversation about race, ethnicity, gender identity, transgender. These are things people don't know how to talk about. They don't have the tools for talking about. it. So that's what our Cultural Intelligence Initiative is all about, trying to give people the tools, the knowledge, the skills uh, to be able to have a conversation that that might be difficult, but, but to have it anyway, because that's where all the learning takes place. It's like when you go to the gym. If you don't, no pain, no gain. If you don't work your muscles, you don't exercise, work, we're beginning to start football season and all the football players are out there exercising mm-hmm. and manufacturing, prepare themselves for the regular season. If there's no pain, there's no gain. And so with this whole issue about learning across culture groups, you gotta step into that that, that area of unknown where you're uncomfortable but you but you go anywhere and you say, Hey, I didn't grow up around African Americans. Um, you know, what do I need to know to better engage my, my, my black or African American employees so that we can produce what do I need to know that I don't know? That's very difficult, and that's where we think we can add a lot of value for companies. Interesting. Thanks.
0: Um, I want to switch gears for for a second and talk about a couple couple sort of, I guess, movement-related uh, topics. And the first one is one certainly that I know, f- going going back a number of years, has been a focus for the National Restaurant Association and the, the restaurant industry. And that's that's the fight for 15. I guess the the way I view the fight for 15 right now is, you know, whenever it started six, seven years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe less, it seems like forever. But it, when it started, everybody kind of laughed management side. We were like, that'll never happen. And, and you fast forward to today and it's it's a, a, a it's it's a it's a reality. in some companies, a lot of other big companies, including those in the restaurant industry, have made moves to uh, move towards fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, largely I think driven by the competitive labor market more so than the movement itself. But, um, but it's really, and and of course, like 25 States have made, raised their minimum wage and yada. yada. There's a a lot of, a lot of movement, very successful. Um, What's the perspective on the fight for 15 from your, from your, from you, Jerry, and kind of where is, how is it affecting the industry at all? Or, you know, just your thoughts around that one, I guess. Well, you
1: know, we, we, we don't usually get involved with that kind of dialogue. Uh, our view on, on things around hourly pay and union, non-union, uh, those things are, are up to the companies to, to figure out how they want to manage to do that and approach that. You know, we advocate for opportunity. So I'm not either pro this, anti that I'm pro. Yep. opportunity. And for me, you know, our focus is, um, tell the story of how our industry is a great place for people uh, to build a career, whether you're, you're, you know, coming here from other countries and you're an immigrant and you have limited skills, or if you grew up in a part of the U S where, where you, you had a shortage of opportunity, or if you're, you're someone trying to restart your life after having, you know, a brush with the criminal justice system. Um, our industry is forgiving our industry uh, will teach people the skills they need to know to to be successful. They can go from the dish room to the boardroom i 'm living proof uh, I came from a from a, uh, um, a large family. We lost my dad when I was young and you know we didn 't have any money and uh, i 've gone uh, i 've been so successful i 've been around the world thanks to the food service industry so you know things like wages and and labor issues we leave that to the experts to to uh, address um, we think there 's plenty of Good story to be told about upward mobility, the chance to become an entrepreneur, a franchisee, and the change your family's life, you know, through work in the restaurant and the hospitality space. And things like, 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 um, like I said, wages and all that, that's, that's going to get figured out on a state-by-state, company-by-company, and I don't have any expertise in that area, so, so I stay in <laughs> my lane.
0: Okay, you know, and, and what you what you said is is so true uh, about the restaurant industry kind of being a place to 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 develop and grow and develop, you know, not only to not only to make some money, you know, maybe at a young age, but to learn business skills. I uh, was at, I was in Detroit this weekend, which is my hometown, and I drove past a restaurant where that building was. Uh, my first real job was as a dishwasher when I was 13 years old. I'm 62, so. Yeah. It, it, 51 years ago i guess um or whatever i'm bad at math i didn't learn math in the re- that restaurant different name buildings still there still a restaurant, still going half a century um and it, it, i was i was floored because i would have thought it would have been you know knocked down a long time ago but it survived and really has been great uh anyway sorry digress um me too. We talked about it a little bit in the pre-show. I heard a I heard a statement last week that, that really kind of surprised me. And this is probably a bit more in your wheelhouse than Fight for 15. Me too has been around for about two years. Um, lots of stuff going on still, maybe not quite as prevalent in the daily news stories, but still organizations and individuals getting in trouble. And I heard that one byproduct of this is as companies are trying to get things right, um, this attorney that I listened to last week um, mentioned that as sort of an unintended consequence it's causing a different kind of discrimination against women in that some companies are kind of backing away from work managers working with women and that kind of stuff and and almost unintentionally taking opportunities away and you mentioned that you had some heard some research on that so can you comment on that for a minute
1: well sure um uh, first let me let me say that that your experience in Detroit with your first job, there's a lot of people who've had those conversations, so I'm glad you brought that up. Secondly, uh, Me Too's been around for longer than two years, quite a bit longer than two years, but it's only been been main, main, main uh, page news in the last couple of years. Uh, and then thirdly, your point about unintended consequences is exactly what those of us who are in this work uh, worry about. There's already enough of, of backlash where for on a variety of reasons, uh, white men feel like, hey, with all this conversation about diversity and women, what about me? I'm being left out. Um, in fact, some people have tried to make the case that there's reverse discrimination and that white men are, are, are losing out on opportunities. If they're losing out on opportunities to a woman or a person of color, it's because they, sort of, the, the woman or the person of color are better qualified. Because the data just does not suggest that, white men are losing their way, that they're getting less scholarships, that they're getting more, less opportunity. That's just not the case. But the research project you're talking about uh, came out just about a month, and a couple months ago. I actually have the link. And they, they surveyed uh, men in leadership positions. And yes, as a result of me too, some say now they're less likely to take a woman out um, uh, on, on a business trip. So, so she would stay home, and, and they bring a man instead. Secondly, they're less likely to mentor her um, because they're fearful of, of of some kind of reprisal. Um, and third, they're they're also less likely to want to be, uh, you know, in a place where where there's there's just them two alone. That they they don't want to be in a yeah. close. So and I, I've heard this from other people. So, look at, I'm not gonna have my door closed. I don't want to. And that to me. Is, is just misses the whole point. Uh, I, I, well, I'll stop short of saying it's a, it's a cop-out, but, but listen, we know men have been behaving badly when it comes to women for a very long time. It's been happening in business. Women get um, passed over for, for promotions um, and don't get promoted at the same rate as men. We all know that, and the reality is that, that though we have to step up. We have to do a better job to help our companies you know, level the playing field, equal pay for equal work, so so eliminate these disparities that 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 are in place just because of a person's gender. Um, and and in order for that to get done, men have to be part of the solution. Well said. Um,
0: it, it yeah, it's just I it, I don't know, it's just our our reaction to to things, you know, and I I don't know. Anyway, I, I don't want to go down the path I'm thinking, so I'll just drop. <laughs> I'll just drop that. Hey Jerry, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to take. We have about three minutes left, and so I wanted to uh, do. I don't. Know, I don't know exactly. I haven't done this before uh, in this exact way. So uh, I wanted to like name off uh, uh, a kind of food since you work in the in the Food and Hospitality Services Association, and um, maybe have you tell us, you know, one of or some of your favorite places. So, you, you okay to play a silly game with me for a minute?
1: No, I'll do my best. I don't know how good I'll be, at, but I'll try. Yeah,
0: just 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 name a name, and but I'm not trying to get you in trouble. So, I, but so anyway, so like, let's start with cheeseburger. What's your favorite cheeseburger?
1: Oh Lord, you're gonna get me in trouble. Well, it's really to <laughs> not to not to not to go with the Big Mac. That's been part of my uh, my uh, regular routine for a long time. I know. In and out's got a great burger, and we've got a great one in, in Rhode Island where I live. Yeah, um, Lux Burger, but um, it's still tough to beat, you know, two all beef patties. You know, yeah.
0: The, the, the what about tacos? You got a favorite taco place? Oh my goodness!
1: Oh Lord! Um, who's got fish tacos that I've been eating in uh, a couple spots? One in Dallas and one in California. There's a there's a California Fish House that had fish tacos um i've had in a very very long time um and so it's a place in la um uh that i that i think does a great job but fish tacos are everywhere these days so yeah it's hard not not to love those
0: i was out in san diego a few years ago and i think that's where those things got started and I was told to go try the place that founded them, and it actually wasn't that. I can't think of the name, and I don't want to badmouth them anyway. But I wasn't. I wasn't that impressed. I was thinking, this is the home. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, now, um, so we we have my favorite
1: up, place for fish. My favorite place place for fish is Hemingway yep. Seafood in Providence. Okay, I have a little DNA in there because I helped open that restaurant in 1985, and it's still there and still does a great job. Great oysters. Nice. Great fresh fish. Nice.
0: So we have we have just about a minute left, Jerry. So I want to make sure people know how to find you. So share your website, Twitters, or whatever else you you have that sure. they can. Uh...
1: So go go to www.mfha.net. M like Mary, F like Frank, H like Harry, A like Andrew. Dot net, and you can get to everything we do there. Um, or just type in my name, Jerry Fernandez, and up will pop uh, our, our website. And I put a page, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to say thank you to you, Mike, um, for what you've done. And Q is the sponsor. Is, is a great organization. And what you do for the industry is much, much appreciated. So thank you for having me on today. It's been a great, great pleasure.
0: Thanks, Jerry. I really appreciate you joining on a, on a quick request. And uh, uh, it was delightful to have you here. We will talk again soon. Take care. Bye. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much.